0: Welcome back to Screensaver, a Friends from Work TV and Film podcast hosted by me, Robbie Earle, and by my longtime friend from work, Kyle Sconawill. And we are here on one of the one of the more special days for at least for you, Kyle, for me, and I think for a lot of folks, because we are talking about a Christopher Nolan film. Yes, A new are. Christopher Nolan film, and that doesn't that doesn't happen all that often.
1: So you know, no, it doesn't. And we got to be thankful when we get them. Just appreciate them when you get them.
0: Merry Nolan Day to all. Happy Nolan Day. Today we're going to be
1: talking about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which just released this last week, July twenty first. Directed by Christopher Nolan. Music composed by Ludwig Göransson, our boy.
0: Mm-hmm. Produced
1: by Christopher Nolan, Emma Thomas, Charles Roven. Cinematography by Hoyt Van Hoytema. I may be saying that wrong. And Screenplay by Christopher Nolan. Important to note that the screenplay here is by Chris Nolan, not his brother, who sometimes partakes in writing the screenplays for his films. Every time we do a screensaver episode, for those just finding this podcast, we like to talk about what are we talking about, why are we talking about it, and how does this movie or TV show do in telling that story? And so that's kind of the what Oppenheimer, the why Robbie is a very complex thing for both you and I, I know our history with Christopher Nolan goes way, way, way back. And so I want to start with a couple of really, really high level Christopher Nolan thoughts before we dive into the how of Oppenheimer, if that's okay with you. Yeah, please. Christopher Nolan is my favorite director. I won't put words in your mouth, but I know you're a huge fan as well. I think Mm -hmm. he's not only my favorite director, he definitely is in the top five of best directors of all time, in my opinion. Just to portray the consistency of his filmography across his career, Robbie. I briefly Googled this. His Rotten Tomatoes scores overall, I'm going to say a lot of numbers really quickly here. His worst reviewed film, his worst film by Rotten Tomatoes score is tenant with a 69%, 76% audience. Wow. Listen to this now. Ready? Interstellar, 73, 86. The Prestige, 76, 92. Following, 82, 85. Batman Begins, 84, 84. Inception, 87, 91. The Dark Knight Rises, 87, 90. Insomnia, 92, 77. Dunkirk, 92, 81. Memento 9394, The Dark Knight 9494, Oppenheimer 9494. Man. His lowest critical score is Tenet, which is still a good movie of 69%. His lowest yeah. audience score ever is a 76%. So he has displayed a vast array of genres and films across his career and mm-hmm. still never achieving a score lower than 69%. That's my first premise. One of the most consistent directors of all time.
0: Yeah, I had that thought. Uh, I, I was, after we left the theater, I realized I had never had the chance to go back and watch Tenet again, which is something I've been wanting to do because I'd only seen it the one time in theaters and that movie is famously hard to understand both conceptually and literally, it's hard to understand what the actors are saying. And so I finally got to go back and, and watch it and uh, watch it with subtitles. And I, I won't go into all that here because we'll talk about more of his filmography in other episodes, I'm sure. But there was a, a special feature where they kind of walked through his career from the, the effects perspective, like hmm. how he kind of learned project by project how to do certain things practically. And so some of the famous moments that everyone remembers, like the, the big semi-flipping in Dark Knight or the crazy like wings off the plane scene in Dark Knight Rises, stuff with Inception, you know, with the centrifuge. like, And so it was just really interesting watching his career progress, even though it's sort of from a different perspective than what we're talking about here. And yeah, as I'm watching, it's like, these are all, these are different kinds of movies, but it's interesting how he's, he's got this particular, there's a consistency, like you're saying. And there's also like a, there's this unmistakable care that's put in to where even if you don't love all of those movies, I feel like what makes Christopher Nolan really unique is I I don't think that you'll ever walk out of a Chris Nolan movie feeling like you saw something that was poorly made.
1: I did not pay you to say that, but that sets up my other two disclaimers absolutely perfectly. You just touched on (laughs) both of them. So I'll go with disclaimer number two. Christopher Nolan never does anything Mm half-assed. He pours himself into every bit of the filmmaking More than almost any director ever, and I know any creator is going to say that they do, 100%. But his entire brand, Robbie, is literally that he cares about every single detail. That is, like, how he's made his brand. Right. He has become the Dave Grohl of (laughs) filmmaking where it's, like, doesn't have a smartphone, stays off the grid. You never see him doing media. Contrast that to, like, Taika Waititi, for example.
0: Right, right.
1: He is all business. Everything I read about him is that he's all business on set. Phones are not allowed on set. There's not a ton of joking around. It is Uh getting done as fast as possible and as intense as possible while still being an incredible work environment. It's not toxic. But it's just he's an all-business guy who cares about the story he's making almost more than anybody. So you see that in the visual effects, how he treats CG, the writing, the thought about the concept of the story ahead of time, Mm -hmm. and then the thought on how he wants to actually edit it and pace it. Yeah. So whether you like that or not, you cannot leave, to your point, feeling like he didn't care about the story he told. And then my last thing that you touched on, people at this point are starting to kind of learn what a Christopher Nolan film is. And you're right. I'm not going to go into detail on every part of his filmography because this is not our Christopher Nolan Magnus Opus episode here. (laughs) But but 90% of what he does, you can see how these scores are explainable. It's hard to walk out of a film and feel like he doesn't care about it. But also he's got a certain touch that you're starting to see, right? Like even in this movie, the way he approached the storytelling of the color versus the black and white and intentionally almost making that confusing so that he can have a big reveal at the end, like what Albert Einstein said to him. The uh-huh. way in Memento, he does the color in black and white to, to show the different timelines. Tenet, the red and green, I think it is, to show the people going back and forth. He's He does a lot of thought into the twisty nature of how he's going to even tell the story. Even mm-hmm. Dunkirk, he doesn't approach the story just linearly. He wants to find a way to basically keep it nonlinear. He demands that his audience is intelligent and paying attention. And I know some people are right now are rolling their eyes at what I just said, but I think that that can turn a few people off. Some people, if you're not paying total attention, or even if you're paying attention, but it can cause you to almost roll your eyes at the pretentiousness of the film because it's not your scene or you're missing some details or for whatever reason, you're not totally engaged. If you are not totally engaged, it can come off as confusing pretentious. And I can see that a little bit so I can see how some people would give these movies one star review, but 90% of the time, if you are paying attention, it is so rewarding for the audience to find and catch all of the things. And to your point from previous episodes, it does often demand a rewatch just so Mm -hmm. that you can catch all of the stuff that he's trying to tell. So does he sometime intentionally make it confusing to lose the people who aren't willing to pay attention? Probably. And that can be an eye roll. But for the most part, if you are paying attention, like he demands you to be more than any other director I know, it can be such a rewarding experience. So that is my opening Kyle rant on Christopher Nolan thoughts.
0: Wow. No, I think that, I think that's a really good place to start where you left off there because yeah, the the demand that people pay attention, I think it's very consistent with Nolan's brand personally. Like what you're talking about with him not having smartphones and uh-huh. kind of taking things seriously in that regard. I think that it's not, it can come off as sort of, you're right, uh, it can come off as some kind of indulgence or, yeah, like a pretension. But I think really it's just a it's kind of a respect for the audience, you know? Like you're going to make something that is interesting enough to pull you off of your phone, hopefully, and keep you engaged rather than it, you're not gonna have many opportunities to kind of drift off or to be thinking about something else or checking your notifications. Just, it, I think that it's, that's kind of where we have to be right now for a movie to really break through. Because I think ultimately that's one of the like one of the real sins of our generation, I guess, is is the the false notion that multitasking is even possible at the level that we try to make it possible, at least. And so I think when something comes along that does demand your entire attention, I think that that's kind of a gift by requiring that of us, it gives us the better movie experience and, you know, honors what the storytellers, Chris, and then also the, the cast and crew are putting into this, which, you know, when you, again, when you watch some of these behind the scenes features, like they are putting in the work.
1: Right. He has all of these wild stories that on the surface level, people can view and be like, that's so confusing. That doesn't make sense. But what's crazy about Christopher Nolan is he always sets up the rules beforehand if you're paying attention. Like Inception, they literally give you exposition on what they're about to do. So that when you see the actual craziness, you can go back and be like, well, the character's literally explained what's happening here. Interstellar is literally explained. Right. And so if you catch it and you are paying attention, you just realize how much thought is put into the film. Okay, so that was the what and the why. Now with the how. Oppenheimer. I would love you to take over to kick us off here.
0: So this is something I could go on about for a long time here just at the start, but I won't. But I will say there were two big takeaways for me as I was walking out of the theater and kind of as I've thought over the last few days. One, you know, talking about the history that we have with Nolan. I have this vivid memory of leaving the theater in 2007 after seeing the prestige and it was the it was the first time i think that i was really aware of a director like th- that there was a, a a name that i attached any kind of significance to like i think before that i had i mean i've always loved movies but i think i was a fan of franchises or i was a fan of actors But I don't think that I had really isolated a particular director that I was going to continue to follow anytime I saw his name on something until that night. Like, I I think I had only ever seen Batman Begins, which I really enjoyed, but I was not expecting the experience I had with The Prestige I think it was like my immediate new favorite movie. It still is one of my favorite movies. And I was just so, everything about it, I was kind of entranced by some of these elements that we've already covered. And it made me want to go back and watch it again, which I did. And ever since, you know, I've been a big fan of everything Nolan has done and have had some really great theater experiences from The Dark Knight to Interstellar, which I think you and I actually saw together at your favorite Nashville IMAX theater, which I'm sure we will talk more about here in a second too. But I think Friday night when I walked out of the theater after seeing Oppenheimer, it was the first time I have had that kind of reaction to a Nolan film since the prestige. That's not me saying that that and the prestige are the best Nolan films. I, it's just me coming from a place where I don't think I knew fully what to expect and was so delighted by virtually every element of the film. It, it was, it was actually one of the best movie experiences I think I've ever had for a lot of reasons. It, I was just blown away. It felt like I was rediscovering this director and that's why I can continue to gush about this for as long as we will go on the episode, Please. but I do have to say, you know, like I, I, as someone that's a big fan of Nolan, this just really exceeded my expectations. And, and I felt that those were pretty high. The second thing that is sort of related as we're talking about Nolan's filmography, I was watching that extra I was talking about for Tenet and he's talking about how everything kind of led to what he was able to pull off in tenant from an effects perspective, but you know, tenant for me, I enjoyed it. And, 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 we've talked about that some here and there, it's not one of my favorite Nolan movies. And in some ways it felt not like a regression, but you know, it's like inception and then interstellar. It, it felt like he was moving forward and chasing kind of new ideas and it felt to me like Tenet just kind of lived in that inception genre and was a different take on that
1: but didn't do it as well
0: without right right this movie actually feels to me like the culmination of Nolan's career like i i'm obviously i'm looking forward to getting more things from him but, as I was thinking about it, and you brought up some of this already, it's like some you can find elements through everything he's ever put out that show up here in Oppenheimer from the like nonlinear storytelling, the black and white like you're talking about the effect side of just how good he makes these like atomic bomb tests look, but also it's like the his his knack for communicating these really high science concepts to uh, a general film audience, some of the cast members that he's kind of collected as as frequent collaborators. It's like you see all of these, these instincts that he's honed over the years, and it just comes together in this way that I, I think is is really a perfect distillation of, of his filmmaking. Like, to where if, if I wanted to show somebody, like, this is what a, a Christopher Nolan film looks like, I think this would be the perfect way to do that.
1: I totally agree. I have so many thoughts here. A question to you right away. Do you see what I meant now when I said that this film... Could and probably should win Best Picture. Agreed? Yeah. And I think it would be his first winning Best Picture film. I think.
0: I think so, yeah. He's
1: been nominated twice, I think. You see that. And you can see how Christopher Nolan has some of the most genius movie making and storytelling techniques that are used all throughout. And we can break all of them down, but all the aspects, the acting, the visual, the lighting, the pacing, the twists in the story, how it's revealed, all of that is perfection. Mm -hmm. Can you also see my comment of, man, you leave feeling so heavy and sad and it's so much to ingest and digest that I didn't right away think I need to rewatch this film. I don't know if I'll ever see it again. Can both of those things be true? And do you think I'm crazy if I say
0: that? No, I don't think you're crazy. I mean, I think it's a, it's a movie that is supposed to be... It's something that I think you're supposed to sit with.
1: You know, we use the word popcorn flick here all the time. It's a candy uh-huh. film. Whatever that means, this is the exact opposite. Right. This is like right. the most nutritious broccoli and asparagus dinner. We were like, wow, that's good <laughs> for me. But this is not Inception as far as <laughs> just some of the casual yeah. nature of the story. Like the the end credits rolled and I took my brother to the screen with me. And he turned to me and goes, wow, that was a really light flick. huh? Just a real quick light <laughs> flick. <laughs> um, yeah. It is truly a breathtaking masterpiece culmination of his career that I'll probably see once or twice in my life.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a freak, and so I'm probably going to try to go see it again in theaters before I uh, lose the opportunity. First, because whereas you were lucky to have one of the few theaters in the country that's showing this film in, in 70 millimeter IMAX, in, in Nashville, Austin, as great of a of a film city as it is, actually does not have a theater with that capability mm-hmm. or at least does not have a theater. You know, we have great IMAX theaters, but there is one in San Antonio, <laughs> which is about a uh, hour and change drive from here. And I'm strongly considering making a short weekend trip at some point because... I just, the the performances in this movie were so captivating to me. Some of the, the effects, not just visual effects, but just what Nolan was kind of bringing forward a- across the spectrum, like from the sound design, from some of the editing. Like, I just want to sit and let this movie happen to me again. (laughs) But I also recognize it's not one that that you easily just kind of pop in and out of.
1: I got to say right here, I love that it blew you away this much. I mean, I knew you'd like it. I said that to you off air. I said that to you on air on Friends from Work last week when I did a little preview. But I don't Mm -hmm. think I knew the extent. I mean, I've never heard you talk like what you just did earlier in this episode. You're usually (laughs) the guy who shies away from hot takes. So to say it's one of the best movies you've ever seen, like the culmination of Christopher Nolan's career, crazy. But I've been hearing that from other people. So I I truly say that to say, I love that. I love that for you.
0: Well, and and I was, what I love is that I, I really had no, I had high expectations, like I said, and that I just, I know that Christopher Nolan doesn't make bad movies and the cast was looking really great. But, you know, I was wondering what we were going to be getting here because Dunkirk was, while it still definitely utilized some of those same techniques, was kind of a different thing than the you know, it's like, I think Tarantino said that Dunkirk is when, what, Chris Nolan became not a comic book movie director, which is, I'm not necessarily subscribing to that, but I think I understand what Tarantino was saying. Like, even Inception and Interstellar, they're not comic book movies, obviously, but you can see how they would would be made by the same guy that made the Dark Knight movies. And then Dunkirk felt like a, a real different step. And so I just didn't really know how Oppenheimer would fall on that spectrum. But yeah, I, I think I was just, that's what blew me away. Like some of these movies can kind of be a bit of a slog, like the big massive historical dramas, like even if you do have great performances, because it's like, you know, you sort of know what happened and it, it can only be told so many ways. But the way that, you know, among other things, he utilized the cast that he did have.
1: Yes, that's actually perfect. I want to start there. Getting into the nitty gritty. Yeah. Were you not stunned at the cast? I mean, I knew the top build people, but I pulled this open because it's almost becoming a joke because there's so many characters in this film. I didn't, okay, obviously Killen Murphy, Florence Pugh, Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt. That right there is already one of the top casts this year, right? Yeah. Just that. Yeah, yeah. But Matt Damon has a huge role. Rami Malek, out of nowhere, has a quick role. Right. David Dasmelschian. Right. Yeah. Gary Oldman for pod. 30 seconds. Josh Hartnett. Casey Affleck. Yeah. Dane DeHaan. Alex Wolf. Kenneth Branagh has a quick cameo. Jason yeah. Clark. I mean, this it's literally almost an embarrassment of riches to where... Clearly, what's happening here is that so many people now respect Christopher Nolan that they want to be a part of it. That's what's different. And that feels so similar to Marvel in some ways in their heyday, where yeah, it started getting so good that people were like, "If Marvel calls, I'm going to take it, you take it." And I heard that that's exactly what happened specifically with Matt Damon, that Matt Damon was like on a break from acting for a while, and he told his uh-huh. wife with one caveat if Christopher Nolan calls me, I'm going to do the movie. And he got called. Man. So it's just crazy how expansive that cast is and that even Hollywood, I guess, is starting to sense that, like, if Christopher Nolan's making a movie, you want to be a part of it, which is crazy.
0: Well, and, and one thing that I, that I love about that too, like just how big the cast was, is I had no concept other than Killian Murphy how significant any one actor's role would be until I actually got in, in the theater. Right. And, and, that, and then
1: even how insignificant some of the people that I recognized were. Like, did you recognize the guy from She-Hulk was in this for one second? Yes. And yeah, yeah. How about um, Papa from Stranger Things has like two lines. Uh-huh. It's like even people that had no role basically wanted to be a part of it for one second.
0: Right. Crazy. Who, who was also used in uh, The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Gary Oldman I, has
1: like 30 seconds, you know, or a minute. That's
0: right. Gary Oldman's Truman, man. Yeah. Well, and and you talked about the this kind of being like Marvel in its heyday. And I did read some kind of snippet from Nolan talking about his decision to cast Robert Downey Jr. in this film. And he... He made the point that there is a whole generation, particularly you know, folks that are that are a bit younger than us, that have grown up with Robert Downey Jr. being kind of the main movie star
1: mm-hmm. for
0: them. It's like you know, if, if you were if you kind of grew up in the two thousands, then you've always been aware of him just being this guy that captivates and, and blockbusters. And Nolan said that he felt that. Everyone in Hollywood knows how insanely talented RDJ is. I think he said he's one of the great actors that's working today. And I saw, he that, I saw he, that he
1: said casting RDJ as Iron Man was one of the greatest decisions in film history. That's what he said in an interview.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't see that. That's great. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I he wanted, fo- again, I don't think this was belittling what RDJ has done on the Marvel side, but- Nolan wanted audiences to see the full range of what Downey is capable of. And so I think that this became kind of a a showcase for him. And you have these moments between him and Killian Murphy that are just electric. I mean, I think that those are, are both two of my favorite actors. They're two of these actors that just no matter where they show up, they're going to be delivering a performance, like they're setting the bar in in, in any given scene that everybody else will have to try to hit if they can.
1: The sequence at the dinner table where they're arguing about if there's been a spy in the bomb and RDJ keeps showing the chart of the Soviets having Uh some kind of nuclear thing was so captivating and had a tiny bit of humor how they had to keep moving the plant. That was a standout for me, Uh getting to see them interact together actually, because there were so many sequences where they actually weren't in the same scene. They talked about this on their press tour. They're both main characters, and I think RDJ had an even more elevated role than I anticipated ahead of time.
0: Is that fair to say? Oh, for me, definitely.
1: Yeah, but they're hardly on the screen together, which is wild. And so they're like enemies that aren't actually facing off very often. When they actually do, it's amazing. I mean, that's what I said to you in the preview last week. I said, Killian Murphy could be nominated and should be nominated for Best Actor, and RDJ and Emily Blunt could probably be nominated for Best Supporting Actor and Actress.
0: I'm not not wrong,
1: I don't think, on this.
0: No, I mean, there are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of elements of this that I would like to see called out at the next Academy Awards. And I don't always feel that way. Like, I think I often walk away from a movie and I'm like, Oh, that is Oscar worthy. I would love for it to win a lot of awards, but this is one where I'm walking out with a lot of specific categories that I think this movie should win in.
1: So speaking of specific categories, I've been waiting two weeks to talk to you about this specifically, which is just, I said, there were some things that were unexpected. Let me give you a tiny parallel. A couple of weeks ago on Screensaver, my friend Stephen Matthew and I talked about how in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, which I freaking loved, there was that famous stunt that we had seen all the behind-the-scenes of. And then when I actually got to it in the film, it was a little bit of a letdown because we had seen so much of the behind-the-scenes of it first.
0: Right, um, right.
1: This movie, I went into it going, man, I wonder how they're going to actually do the bomb. There's been so much hype about the actual bomb going off that can that even live up to it? And then I said in the preview episode last week, dude, it's so unexpected. This is what I was talking about. I went into it going, how can they possibly live up to the expectations of this bomb going off? And it right. far exceeded my expectations in, in the unexpected nature of it. I thought the whole buildup of, you know, the guy putting on the sunscreen, some people not knowing how far away is safe. Cause they've never done this. Uh-huh. Like the uh-huh. idea of like, what if this keeps a chain reaction going and the whole world ends, someone sitting in their car to protect themselves just in case not knowing how to handle it. And then the light on Killian Murphy's. Eyes, the editing of it being totally yeah. silent, except for Killian Murphy's breath, which I have chills right now. Uh, and then yeah. just the audio of him. And now I've become death, destroyer of worlds. Yes. And all before there's actually a sound effect of the bomb, and then dragging that out so obnoxiously long, then the uh-huh. wind knocking them back, and finally, in my 70 millimeter IMAX, the sound effect of the bomb hitting you being so startling because you've you've been yeah. lulled to sleep that there is no sound effect. It in every way exceeded my expectation on how they're going to do it. It's so unexpected, even though I knew they were going to blow up this bomb. How could he find a way to make it unexpected? And he did. It's just mind-blowing to me.
0: I No, I, that's one of my, I mean, you know, unsurprisingly, I guess, one of my favorite moments. And I asked you in in one of our recent episodes, because you saw this before I did, you know, I, I said I was curious to see how they would address certain really famous Oppenheimer moments. And the one that I really had in mind is that quote, that I am become death, And I, I just, it's such, a, it's such a famous line that I was worried it was going to be a little on the nose or like, I was, I was worried it was going to be hard to avoid a, a level of cheesiness. Just because any time it's like, and then here it is like the big Oppenheimer line and the way that Nolan delivers that line as a flashback from the, the first time he and Florence P were together and you hear both of them breathing in the background, like it's, it's the audio cut from it without the visual flashback. I thought that was one of the most exquisite moments Uh, of the entire film in what it did tonally and in just the level of like, especially given the impact that that relationship has on how we view Oppenheimer's character, how I think he's viewing himself and viewing like the journey that's led him to that point. It's, there's such a, I mean, you're right. It's a, there's a heaviness there but I love the intimacy that we get in a scene that is so huge in terms of its, its you know, global repercussions. And that was, there are several, there are several moments like that throughout the movie that I think are beyond anything I've ever seen Nolan do, both practically and just Emotionally, what he's able to elicit. Like I felt the same way with the the sound of the stomping and the bleachers. Yep. That we hear kind of for a while without really knowing what it is, and then that moment, whenever he's you know, almost having like a like a panic attack, but saying things that are so clearly at odds with I how bet he Japan feels. didn't like it. Yeah. Oh man, it's like so heavy.
1: So again, back to my preview, I said that if Ludwig Gorenson doesn't win for score, which I think he will, because the mm-hmm. score is also magnificent, they need yep. to win for some kind of editing and sound design. And that's what I was meaning. The fact that the bomb is going off and there's no audio or the fact mm-hmm. that he's having a panic attack with the weird audio where you're only hearing a single voice or breath while the stomping was building up right before it and the stomping stops in his brain. And then even the visual editing of the effect of him looking at people that are happy and cheering and then seeing them crying or a face melting from the radiation or like realizing what was happening. I have chills right now again. Oh my gosh. Realizing what was happening. The editing of that is also going to win an award. It has to. All the things you're talking about. Yeah. So again, we talked about how magnificent the acting was. We talked about how spectacular The visual effects and the editing with that stuff, I need to listen to Ludwig's score more. But the way Nolan puts an emphasis on the score to carry Mm -hmm. so much weight, to have it so loud that it's not background and it's carrying the weight of certain scenes, magnificent. And we talked about the unexpected nature that somehow the bomb going off exceeded my expectations. But I still haven't even talked about my favorite part of the film yet which is that I had no idea the extent this was going to be a case study of Robert Oppenheimer. Killian Murphy's performance tied into that for sure. But I thought the writing of taking a guy at the beginning of the movie who is so excited about science and he's a free Uh thinker, he's far left, he's liberal, he's borderline communist, and he just wants to dive into physics and what that could look like. And that gives him so much joy to trace that character for three hours and see how he ends up with the final shot of him visualizing all the news going off and just how sickly he looks and the panic right. on his face. To right. go from there to there, I thought was magnificent storytelling. The panic attack sequences that we're talking about. The sequence yeah. when Florence Pugh, Pugh's character died and what that did to oh, him. Oh,
0: man. The yeah.
1: sequences where he realizes he can't be cheating on his wife, but then he's loyal to his wife, but then not loyal to his wife. The The specific sequence I thought that was genius, and some people are going to find this controversial. The fact that they didn't actually show the bomb going off in Hiroshima, but uh-huh. but but the the sequence where it's the second the test is positive and, and it works and they're celebrating, like one minute later, Matt Damon, who's his biggest ally, goes like, we'll take it from here boxes up the bomb, carts it away. And it shows this shot of him staring like, what? Like it's over. And then he says like, I'll call you. Right. He's like, no, no, no. Your job's done. Like you don't need to call us anymore. He wants input in the decision now that he did it. And then all of a sudden he just gets the news like anyone else that they did it. And how that character study of realizing like, oh my gosh, I did this. The government totally cut me out. And now I have no say and yeah. that's when it shifts for him, like realizing it's not just science anymore. I've become death.
0: Yeah, that well, no, char- I mean,
1: that character study far exceeded my expectations, bro.
0: Oh, the way, no, for sure. I mean, the, yeah, the, the way that he asks, because Oppenheimer at that point is arguably, as, their, as the Manhattan Project is kind of coming to its end, he is arguably the most powerful man in the world in terms of the amount of access that he has, in, in terms of how significant he is to the American government at a point where the U.S. is kind of reaching a crescendo of power. And then right after that, him asking, can I come to Washington with you? And the response being, why? Oh, we're good. It's like, it's so, yeah. I mean, it, it it's like you feel like he has been... Almost, not duped, but Well, kind definitely of, because then used. he's put on trial. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and even that, you know, I mean, I talk about all of the different elements of, of these films we've gone through, and I think what I didn't expect here, you're talking about not expecting the case study. I you know, I think one of the things that makes The Prestige so special for me is the kind of rivalry relationship that it's centered on between Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale's characters. And I I really, I think this is the first time we've gotten that in a Nolan film since then, where it's clearly, you know, the, the difference here is there is one main character. But the thing that I thought worked so well in The Prestige is you end that movie and you're really not sure who, to who was right. Yes. Yeah. Like, and I think it's because neither neither is. Right. And here is kind of like I, I loved that that yes there were moments where you're supposed to really hate R D J Strauss and you think that oh he's you know really he's the bad guy and he's hanging Oppenheimer out to dry, but then you think about what you've seen of Oppenheimer in the very end where we're hearing about he wanted this this is exactly how he's going to basically try to exonerate himself in history by by making himself this martyr that's been persecuted
1: yeah she says did you get tar and feathered on purpose in public to to try to cover up your image something like that and he was like well we'll see
0: yeah maybe. yeah <laughs> and it's and it's it's kind of true right like i i think that it it both it rings true in the way that we look back at oppenheimer and i also feel like it it rings true to the version of him that we saw throughout the film but it, it's such an and you're right i mean the character study side of that is fascinating i i, I think on both sides because what i love yes we see all of these complications within Oppenheimer and, and his sort of contradictory motivations. But there's also such a focus in this film on the, the various egos at play and how much that impacted the history of the world and how many things were, were motivated, you know, regardless of the outcome of the events themselves, the motivations were often so petty and so it's like the, the version of Truman that we get, you know, which is like a very intentional take both on that president and on the, the kind of perspective of the U.S. when they're dropping the bomb. But then, you know, of course, the big one being Strauss and this all coming down to what he thought was a slight against him from Oppenheimer to Einstein that we then find out had nothing to do with him at all. And, and how much havoc has he now wreaked because he assumed, he couldn't imagine that whatever they said was not about him. And so he goes on this vendetta that ultimately, you know, spirals his own career and, and changes the trajectory of, of Oppenheimer and potentially of U.S. foreign policy. And so to root it all in, again, it's that, it's the, the juxtaposition that Nolan does this entire movie of the, the kind of intimate in the epic.
1: I love the prestige call out and the rivalry there, because I think that is the only reason why he would include and put emphasis on Florence Pugh's character and Emily Blunt's character is to actually take your view of Oppenheimer down a little bit so that it's not Oppenheimer's the hero RDJ mm-hmm. is, you know, Strauss is ruining everything. That's such a good call out because I think once you get to see that Oppenheimer is struggling with this stuff, but he's cheating on his wife and he has these relationships and he hasn't really invested right. in his relationship and his family and Emily Blunt's character, like they don't, they have a very strained relationship as well. You start realizing that he's not all perfect. And I love that he paints that that way. That is very prestige feeling. So that you aren't, as well, an audience, and, just rooting just for him, you know, and no one else.
0: And, and talking about the way he paints it, I, I think one of, the, one of the last big notes for me, you covered, in terms of specifics, the score, I, I thought, again, I'm not trying to be hot takey, but I think this is my favorite Ludwig work that we've gotten. And, you know, he's already won an Oscar for Black Panther, which I think is one of the best scores that, that we've gotten, you know, in the last 10 years anyway, but this is one that I, I cannot get over. And you called that before I went in. The other thing that I can't get over is the, the writing. And, and you did mention earlier that you thought that that was done so well as it relates to Oppenheimer. And I agree. I mean, I think that the, the that's one of the ways this movie really blew me away because I have come to expect really well-written Nolan movies historically at least in my opinion, are the ones that Jonathan has taken the lead on when it comes to the script. And I've often noticed the difference, and it's not that the writing is bad in in those other films, but it doesn't, it's not quite as, we don't have those iconic moments that Jonathan has given us. And so I was watching this movie, and and one thing that's kind of been fun lately is I've stopped looking up a lot of credits beforehand and then just kind of find things out as the credits are actually rolling at the end of the film. And so I was going into it and I, I didn't know if Jonathan had worked on this or not, but I would have, I would have bet that he had based on how strong the writing was, because I think it's one of the best written films no one's ever made. And then I saw that I think Chris is the only one that has a, a writing credit on this period, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm seeing. So yeah, I mean that's like I was really impressed because th- this was again, I mean yeah, it, it, it was a masterclass and and I think one thing that shows through, I noticed this rewatching Tenet the other day. There is a there's a scene in Tenet where they talk about Oppenheimer. Did you know this?
1: No. I don't remember that at all. So
0: I'm sure this will like go around the internet at some point, but you know, we watched it like the day after after seeing Oppenheimer, so it was obviously fresh. But there's a conversation where it's the it's uh, the protagonist, Washington's character, and I forget who he's talking to, but they're talking about the impact of the bomb dropping. and they talk about specifically, I mean, there are several lines that are lifted almost straight from you know or or appear to be lifted straight from the screenplay that we then got for Oppenheimer but talking about the chain reaction that could destroy the world and talking about the way Oppenheimer felt about that leading into it and what they were afraid might happen and so it's interesting Candace made the point that Nolan was probably reading the Oppenheimer biography that he based the movie on while he was making Tenet because it was clearly at the front of his mind. But I think it's also, it's just something he's clearly passionate about. I think I saw somewhere that he said Oppenheimer is the most important man to ever live. It's, a, it, it, it's clearly a story and a topic that he is personally passionate about. And I think that is what really shines through here. And that's why I think this movie stands above other Nolan films to me is a lot of his films seem centered on an interesting premise. And so it's exploring these really, you know, again, really bold, interesting ideas like what we have in Inception and and Interstellar and Tenet. But I think my favorite Nolan films are the ones that are as much centered on a particular character as they are the, the context. And I think this is the most character driven thing that I I think we've ever gotten from Nolan. I think aside from, you know, maybe the, the Batman films, which are obviously a very different, different thing.
1: So I think you're totally right. I feel like with the tenant shout out, he has done that, not necessarily on screen, but I've, I've brought up before how he did that in inception where he had the idea for a movie about dreams and the idea for inception way before some of these other films, but he has the ability or maturity or whatever it is to say he wasn't ready and the budgets weren't ready. And so he put it off and always thought about it, but went and made the dark Knight series before then being like, okay, I can come back and actually do this now with inception. So not exactly a shout out, but I love the idea that he's kind of always, grinding towards what his next idea could be. We're going to be doing some stuff over on Friends From Work Plus, Screensaver Plus, talking about other Christopher Nolan films and maybe just talking about Christopher Nolan in general more because as you can tell, we're both massive fans and I think there is stuff that I want our audience to know, you know? Mm -hmm. But as we're getting close to wrapping here, I just want to point out a few more thoughts, specifically a few specific scenes that I feel like deserve attention. I thought the first... Sequence where Oppenheimer is sitting in the government council room where they're discussing if they should drop the bomb and where they should or should not drop it, and if other countries have it already, etc. I mm-hmm. thought that was just a chilling sequence. And when you started to finally get a look at the real world ramifications of this thing, it started going from a science project to they're crossing off cities because they don't want to go there because him, he and his wife honeymoon there or vacation there. Oh, yeah. yeah. And our theater literally, like, gasped when that line was uttered. Um, I think when you know the ending of the story, that scene was so chilling. It's so dark. And part of it is, you know, at the time, I'm not even sure anyone in that room except for Oppenheimer really knew the extent of the damage. In fact, I'm not even sure... Oppenheimer knew the extent of the damage because when he's doing that sequence where he's being investigated about the hydrogen bomb, he guessed how many people died from the atom bomb and he's now you know 150,000 people or whatever it is short of what it was because I'm not even sure they knew about the radiation and stuff, the detail of that. But I thought that was a crazy scene and that just kind of encapsulates what I think this movie does so well, which is the incredible building of tension throughout the film without there really ever being action sequences. And yet there are so many sequences where you're on the edge of your seat just from the drama and the suspense.
0: I think that's the editing doing such great work here too. I've noticed this in other other TV and film projects when you have to do scenes like that of folks just sitting in a room talking you know there are various kind of tricks that that directors will use whether it's the script itself or the the camera cuts and I I think that it's a really tough balance to strike to keep those engaging and energetic but not too frenetic where it's like you you want to, you want the focus to still be on the, the conversation itself and for everything that's going on around that technically to like put that up on the platform. But I think that that's way easier said than done. And I think the scene that you're pointing out is a great example of with both the, the editing and I think the sound editing, it's like these moments are given a weight that I think is perfect for this project. It's perfect for not just a, a historical film, but I think this historical film that you can really, it just makes so much sense why Nolan would see this as kind of the, the linchpin of history, you know, or at least uh, of kind of modern history. Well,
1: and speaking of editing, how about the idea to have Killian Murphy's background shaking when he's having those panic attacks and he's being interviewed? Yes. Yeah. Or how about the use of editing to build the suspense towards that final bit with Albert Einstein? That the whole time you kind of Mm -hmm. think that that scene was him saying something to put down Strauss, or at least Strauss making it about himself, right? Like he was making everything about himself. Like, I wanted to know what happened in that sequence so badly, and then to finally get it and have that be the last shot of the movie. Again, creative editing, another memorable scene. I thought when Kitty, Oppenheimer's wife, is being interviewed, that was a clutch scene. I oh, think that she's going to drop the ball, scene. and then she's actually yeah. really fiery and really smart and has an entire plan and comeback to the guy interviewing her from the FBI.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that was great.
1: Obviously, we talked about the sequences of the bomb going off. We talked about the scene where he's having that panic attack during the celebration of the bomb going off, that being an absolute mm-hmm. highlight as well. I just felt like there were a lot of individual sequences which were individually captivating.
0: Well, like the the opening with the apple, like that's such a a, a perfect way to set yeah. the tone for what this movie would be. And it's like a, you immediately feel this tension and the fact that, that Kenneth Branagh's Niels Bohr is about to eat the apple. It's like, I'm sure that, that, that is either apocryphal or, or largely embellished, but those are the moments where, you know, like when you talk about adaptations or, or, you know, historical retellings, I feel like a lot of people get hung up on whether it, happened exactly like this. And I was walking out of the theater and and I heard folks talking about, you know, like the some of the World War II era history buffs talking about how certain things were kind of out of order. Certain people didn't meet until after this. And I assume that that's true, but I feel like what this movie did well is finding ways, you know, within its three hour runtime to represent who Oppenheimer was and what his contribution was and the the forces at play in a way where it's that like it feels true if if not entirely factual if that makes sense
1: yep two last quick shout outs I loved Matt Damon's character showing up to hire Oppenheimer and the chemistry uh-huh. there. That led to one of my favorite chunks of the film, them recruiting the scientists and the different ways they go about it. I love that they both immediately respected each other, but where Oppenheimer assumes that Matt Damon's character is just a Dumbo because he's a military guy, and then Matt Damon actually is really smart and has gone through a lot of the same education and can stand up Uh to him in certain things, and then vice versa, that Matt Damon just assumes this is a scientist who doesn't have any other, like, grit, and he does. I love the chemistry that they had together. And my last shout-out is... I thought the use of the marbles as a prop to explain the timeline-ish of, like, how far along they were was a really genius call by Chris Mm -hmm. that it kept us centered as an audience and and locked in on what is actually happening and how far they are because you don't see a ton of the actual building of the bomb. You see a lot of the theoretical. So to actually have marbles keeping you centered was great, I thought. Yeah. Here's how I want to end this. I know that you think this is one of the best movies ever. I absolutely loved it. I want to just address a couple of my concerns as to why I maybe found it not as rewatchable. And you don't have to agree with these, and you don't have to argue with me either way. Just I want to voice some of these really quickly. It definitely had a little bit of that Return of the King false ending thing. I -hmm. think because so much anticipation was built up about the bomb, I thought so little about what would happen after the bombing. Like I thought that was what the movie was about. And so it was Mm -hmm. genius to have these other plots interwoven for sure. But because I felt like that scene was executed so well, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit distracted or emotionally confused that the movie went on for another hour after the bomb sequence. And so it took a little bit of time for me to recenter like, Oh, he's not just trying to tell a story about the invention of the bomb. He's also really trying to tell this story about Strauss and Oppenheimer, which I thought was executed well, but I a little bit lost focus for about 30 minutes after that when I didn't realize it wasn't finished yet.
0: Yeah. No, I think I think that's fair. I, I think, to me, that's where a lot of the the complexity shines through. So I'm glad that we, I'm glad that it continues on and, and kind of moves to the focus on him and Strauss. But I, I do see, I can see a world where this movie was, you know, two and a half hours or, or less. And that was the finale.
1: For sure on paper, totally. Like I never would want him to cut out the back half of the movie because that character study is some of the most rewarding chunks of the film. No doubt. Mm-hmm. But just in my first viewing, I was, I guess, surprised that it was still going. Now, in hindsight, I see what he was doing, and I think that that actually leads perfectly to my second point, because if I watched it again, I bet I would catch even more of stuff that I liked at the yeah. end. Um, but my second point is, I admittedly didn't know a ton about the historical side of this. I knew who Oppenheimer was. I obviously know a little bit about the politics around dropping the atom bomb in 1945, Mm -hmm. but I I would never call myself a history buff. And I do think that if you don't know a ton about it, while it does inspire people to go read about it, which it did for me, I immediately started searching the real stories of these people, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. I do think that some of Nolan's editing in the, Non-linear nature of this and the sheer amount of names that show up do make it a little bit confusing. Like if you don't know who all these different scientists that he's recruiting are, there's right. a little bit of a lack of payoff when they show back up in the FBI interview, when I can't remember who is who. So they say, Oh, Dr. So-and-so he's the traitor. Or he's the spire. He's this Yeah, right. You a little bit get lost. I think when I don't know the real names, at who's who. And so, like, some of those payoffs, like Tenet, a little bit, didn't quite hit for me because I was a little bit confused. Whereas now that I know, oh, that's that name with that face, and there's a, and there's so many characters. I mean, holy crap. Once you know that name with that face, I think a second watch would be rewarding in that facet. Yeah. To, like, see, oh, like, the one guy who tried to walk out and then Oppenheimer didn't let him walk out. Right, but then he right. turns out to be the guy ben that kind of – Right, but then he kind of doesn't stand up for him at the end. Like, that whole dynamic would pay off more now that I kind of know what's going on. So I just wonder if it was maybe a little bit too bulky in the amount of characters and the amount of non linear edits to make it a little intentionally too confusing, which is Christopher Nolan's nature at times, that's a Mm -hmm. little bit of a drawback for me.
0: Thoughts? So, yeah, I, that kind of dovetails with my, really my only concern leaving, if that's even the the right word. It it was something I thought about during the movie. I I need to watch it again. And I also need to read up on this because I I think that I have seen Nolan has commented on this, but I haven't seen what his actual comments are. One thing that I found a little bit confusing at points was he had the the black and white narrative, right, that was based on Strauss. And then we had, like, it wasn't as though it was just one black and white and one color narrative because the, like, the color side of it, you know, was jumping a lot in, you know, in between various times. And I thought that, you know, like Memento, right, where you, you just have kind of two ways the story's being told and you kind of start to learn that, the color one is this and the black and white one is this. Here, I thought the fact that he used that model, but then also had like multiple stories and memories within memories within certain timelines risks some potential confusion. Like, I think I was able to track with it the whole way, but there were times where I was like, I wonder if there was a cleaner way to have done some of this where you can still keep the nonlinear thing but not make it, you know, because there are times where it's like, okay, I have to kind of actively place myself in the correct timeline here or at the correct point in the timeline.
1: Right. I didn't realize that what he's trying to do there is subjective versus objective. Have you heard this?
0: No. Okay, because I figured it was one was... The way I read it was ones from the perspective of of Strauss's character specifically and ones from the perspective of mostly Oppenheimer.
1: So Nolan clarified that- You're saying something kind of different than that. Well, different than Memento, obviously. It's not just a timeline drop. It's a subjective for Oppenheimer or objective situation. And one of the things that I thought was really unique reading about this film was that I didn't realize that the majority of the script- was written from Oppenheimer's perspective. So Nolan so wanted to put an emphasis on Oppenheimer and Killian Murphy's performance that it didn't say Oppenheimer walked across the room. It said in the script, I walk across the room. Oh. I now walk across the room. I now am thinking this. That's what the script looked like. And so all the other characters were fully aware that, like, this is Oppenheimer's movie. However, I think that those black and white sequences are supposed to show that that's the time it's not Oppenheimer's perspective. Huh. So anyways, I, I don't need to get into all the nitty gritty of that. I think your point still stands that again, Christopher Nolan requires you to know some of this stuff to fully appreciate right. it, right, ahead of time, which is a good and sometimes bad, I think. That's all. But yeah, I, and, and I love it because it rewards people who dive in.
0: Yeah, and I do want to rewatch it with that in mind now because there were a couple times where it's like... So, like, if, if we have a black-and-white scene of, of Strauss remembering a moment with Oppenheimer, but then when we get the actual scene, it's in color. Is that an exception to what you're saying? Or is that still supposed to be, we're getting Oppenheimer's version of this thing that Strauss is remembering?
1: So what I'm saying is fact, but I am not the expert in it. We we would need Christopher Nolan on here. And I saw this movie once a week ago. So I need to rewatch it now with that in mind, but I couldn't answer every question you have
0: right now, to be honest. Okay. We'll just that. have to get Chris on. We'll we'll get him just, on and,
1: and oh gosh, I would love that, Christopher. Please, <laughs> let's geek out about filmmaking. Um, so, anyways, my point is, I freaking loved it, but I can see how some of the concerns are true for certain people. Does that make sense? That's why in my review, I said it's not going to be for everyone, even though I think it's a masterpiece. Because I think yeah. some people will yeah. get confused by some of that stuff. Some people will interpret the long runtime, especially the long runtime post the bomb, as like, what are we doing here? Again, I loved it, but I can see where that's coming from. My last critique, and then I want to wrap this episode up. And this is so minor and so dumb. This is a running trend of Christopher Nolan, and I don't fully, I'm just not on his team with this one thing. Again, he's my favorite director in the world. The dialogue, especially at the beginning of the movie in my IMAX theater, was mixed intentionally quietly. And Christopher Nolan again comes Mm -hmm. out and he says, like at the party sequence, like the communist party get together, he says, for example, there's all these different groups of people talking. So in real life, yeah, you're not supposed to be focused on every single line. You're just like walking through a party. But Chris, the realism doesn't work here. That's where it falls off. Because Hmm. if a character gives Oppenheimer a look or a wink or a smile, it's showing us like we're supposed to have heard what that character said. Otherwise I don't understand why Robert's reacting that way. And there were scenes where it was really hard especially the sequence where he first meets Florence Pugh and they're like going back and forth. Mm-hmm. It was really hard to even understand what they were saying because it was mixed so intentionally low. He did this with The Dark Knight Rises. He likes to uh-huh. he likes to mix the music and the sound effects so loud so that you really feel them when they hit. But what ends up happening is the dialogue is so hard to hear that, yeah, Bane would be hard to hear Chris with a mask on, but I am trying to watch <laughs> a movie where like his line is supposed to have impact. So I have to hear it. Even if that's not realistic. And I felt that just a tiny bit. If you want me to have all the same reactions that Killian Murphy's having to these scenes, I need to be able to hear what the other person's
0: saying. <laughs> you know, but to your to your earlier point, and you know, again, this is all kind of on brand with Nolan, but because I I agree with you generally, I do think that he's doing the same thing with the sound. There that he is with his his kind of filmmaking as a whole, which is yeah, it's forcing you to lean in, you know. So so it's like because you can't hear it that well, like aside from the realism, it, it, it's also making you lean forward so you can catch everything that Bane says, and Physically. then it makes you all <laughs> the more dialed in.
1: <laughs> You're a hundred percent right. I it's intentional, and while I typically appreciate what no one's trying to do there. I just think mm-hmm. I, for me, I usually draw the line at myself. I am trying to be as engaged as possible. I am a diehard Nolan fan. Right. And if you're losing me, a la right. Tenet, then I'm like, okay, Chris, I think it's gone one step too far. That's all I'm saying. If I'm struggling to hear it, a person who's an audio engineer obsessed with Nolan trying to hear mm-hmm. it, I think maybe you've gone too far. That's how I felt Tenet a really good movie with some amazing twists that I didn't catch even as an educated member because it was so confusing. So, yeah. This is not nearly that, but I do think he intentionally at times slightly overconfuses it for the audience.
0: I know, I think that's fair. It's interesting, you know, I'm talking about wanting to go see this again in a different format. I never felt that with this movie. Like the the uh the- audio concerns that that I definitely didn't, Tenet, and and re-watching Tenet at home the other night, I I still was like, yeah, I'm, I do not generally like watching movies with subtitles, it's an, it's a real point of contention within the household, and that is one where I was like, yeah, I mean, I feel like I did not catch, like, a good 20 to 30 percent of (laughs) these lines when I saw it in theaters for the first time.
1: It's a trend with him. I don't have any science to back this up. I do think there's a chance that the 70 millimeter IMAX is even more dynamic from the sound perspective.
0: I would believe that.
1: And so it's possible that like when the bomb hit me, it was even louder than when it hit you, like startlingly loud.
0: Yeah. But that
1: the dialogue then is the other extreme, right? That it's even harder to hear. It's possible that the lows are lower and the highs are higher.
0: I don't know that. I feel like, yeah. I, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm, it sounds like that's his preferred format for this film. and
1: Like if you watch it at home in headphones, it might just be more compressed. So the whole thing is easier right. to hear.
0: Which, that, that leads me to my final point here, uh, which is less Oppenheimer related and just uh, a Nolan comment that I found to be vindicating. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this clip going around of... Uh, it's he and Killian Murphy in a video store, like I think somewhere in Europe, someone asks him how he feels about physical media, like like Blu-rays and, and 4K discs versus uh, digital. And he talks for like, you know, 45 seconds about why 4K and, and Blu-ray discs are the definitive versions of his film and how it's where he can get the exact like lighting and like he gets into like brightness and sound and and basically avoiding it. it's more control and you're leaving less up to various streaming platforms that will kind of put their own compression on things and i as somebody that am frequently asked why i continue to collect discs of certain movies felt very affirmed by that because I feel like if anybody, uh, is qualified to talk about the, you know, the definitive way to watch movies like this, that it feels like Nolan, whether that's a thing that you find endearing or to go all the way back to the beginning, uh, to be very pretentious either way, that was like the perfect icing on the cake for me coming out of a, of a weekend, where I was very much in the Nolan world to, to get that nice little little pat on the back from Chris uh, that uh, my collection's valid.
1: My lasting screenshot of Oppenheimer is twofold. If it's a screenshot and one singular image, I'm always going to remember the image of Killian Murphy with the goggles on looking through the hole at the bomb and his whole face washed out in light. That is going to Mm -hmm. be the shot that I cannot stop thinking about. If it's a sequence, though, it'll be the one we've pointed out multiple times where Oppenheimer is having a panic attack during the pro-America rally and how that is edited. I'll never forget that. I left the theater over a week ago, and that is the sequence I can't stop thinking about, the panic on his face when he's realizing what's happening and the duality of what he's actually saying. Haunting, man.
0: Yeah, I, I think
1: borderline borderline horror movie type stuff.
0: Happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. It, it reminded me of some kind of Shutter Island moments. Whenever Leo's character there is having flashbacks and and he's seeing like the frozen corpses. It it, it it like the the moments like that in this movie were were kind of palpable. But yeah, I would say the one you know the scene that that I talked about where you get the flashback. The audio flashback of him reading the Sanskrit to Florence Pugh while he's seeing the bomb work it is such a that the the kind of quiet there, I think, has stuck with me. But I think visually it's funny because it's one of the less like striking things. But I I found myself thinking a lot about that scene of Einstein standing by the pond and and Oppenheimer walking up and then Einstein walking back like that whole little exchange that we see from a couple of angles. I just, uh, again, I love so much that the movie turns on such a kind of innocuous exchange that that's a scene I've kind of played back over and over in my mind. So again, two two kind of uh, quiet scenes within a movie that has so much bombast. And I, I feel like that is sort of what I loved about it in, in a nutshell. Because I think that those are the kinds of scenes that I would not always expect to get from a filmmaker like Christopher Nolan. And so the fact that we got them in spades and also that they hit so hard, I think, is what's going to wind up setting this movie up on a, on a particular pedestal for me.
1: A perfect encapsulation. Nice work, Rob. So that's one half of Barbenheimer with the Heimer part. There may be a little Barbie episode coming pretty soon here on Screensaver. Yes. You never know. You never know what you might be getting. But we'd love to hear your thoughts on Oppenheimer. Hit us up on Discord or our website, theffwpodcast.com, and let us know your Screensaver thoughts. What was your lasting screenshot of Oppenheimer? How did this movie hit you? Do you feel like it should win Best Picture like we did? I hope everyone out there is having an absolute blast. Just an awesome summer. Thank you for listening wherever you are listening and however you are listening. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. We'll talk to you next time right back here on Screensaver.